Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. I get to uh, share God's word with you. And as you can tell from that video, uh, this morning we are going to talk about adoption. And as many of you know, my wife Kathy and I are intimately familiar with adoption. 25 years ago, on November 4th, 1996, uh, just before noon, in a pastor's study in a uh, Baptist church in Columbus, Georgia, an amazing social worker by the name of Phoebe Dawson placed a three-week-old infant girl into my wife's arms and said to us, Mike and Kathy, let me introduce you to your new daughter. And I will never forget that day. I will never forget watching my wife fall instantly in love with Nicole. And after what, what seemed to be an eternity, she finally turned Nicole over to me, and I will never forget, I experienced that same emotion, that, that overwhelming love for this baby that I just met. And I will never, ever, ever forget looking into to my infant daughter's dark, dark, eyes and thinking to myself and being absolutely overwhelmed by the love of God that he had for me. And on that unforgettable Monday, it was as if God poured out every ounce of his infinite love upon me. It was like the entire focus of the God of the universe was on me and this tiny little baby. And he was just saying, Mike, this is how much I love you. And adoption has a way of doing that. It, it forever changes uh, whoever it touches. But November 4th, 1996, wasn't my first experience with adoption. That came 14 years earlier, just before midnight, in front of a, an ornate altar in the soaring sanctuary of a massive, massive Gothic cathedral on the campus of Grove City College. And it was there uh, with moonlight radiating through the, the leaded stained glass windows in the midst of, of what can only be described as deafening silence, that I knelt on the worn, cold slate tile and repented of my sins and received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And at that moment, I was, was immediately adopted into the family of God. So I've experienced adoption from, from both perspectives. I'm an, I'm an adoptive parent, and I'm an adopted son. And it is my deep desire this morning that God would use these two life-altering experiences that I lived through to help you and I understand what it means to be adopted into God's family. So uh, let's get started. If you have a Bible with you, uh, we're going to continue through our study in the book of Romans. Uh, we're in uh, Romans chapter 8. We're kind of uh, hovering there for uh, a number of weeks. Uh, today we're going to look through verses 14 to 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. 
You probably have them on your smartphone. It will also be on the big screen. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. If you were able to stand in honor of God's word, I would humbly ask that you might do that. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, when it comes to the the theological doctrine of election, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, it's the go-to passage. That's the passage that you look at if you want to understand what it means to be adopted into God's family. And uh, it's the passage that clearly explains how this process actually works, who actually is involved in the process, and the benefits that come from that process. Now, in order to understand this doctrine of adoption, we need to understand what adoption actually looked like in the first century. Because adoption in the first century is somewhat different than what adoption is like here in the 21st century. Now, in the the first century uh, Greco-Roman world, there, there were basically two groups of people. You had Jews and you had Gentiles. And adoption was virtually unheard of for the Jewish people. It did happen on occasion, but but the Jewish people rarely ever adopted anyone. But but the Gentiles, the Greco-Romans of the first century, adoption was both legal and it was extremely common. And the primary reason for adoption in that day was to ensure that the family had an heir, so that when you died, there was actually an heir for all of your wealth. And because it was a male-dominated society, the individuals that were getting adopted were primarily males. So if somebody had a, a, a number of biological daughters, they would adopt a male to be their heir because the daughters weren't going to be allowed to, to have uh, the, the wealth And additionally, those who were adopted were almost always adult males. It was rare that you actually adopted a child. You would adopt an adult male. The reason they adopted adult males is because they knew they were going to become their heirs, and they wanted to make sure that the people, the guy that they actually adopted, was going to be able to to be good fiscal managers of the money that was ultimately going to be entrusted to them. And what's really wild is you typically would only have one heir. So like in my family, you wouldn't spread the love between John, Mike, and Nicole. You would send all the love to Mike. And the reason for that is they wanted to keep the wealth of the family concentrated. They didn't want to spread the wealth out over multiple parts or multiple beneficiaries. Now, you need to keep all of that that I just explained to you in the back of your head as we begin to work our way through this passage because it will 
open our eyes to actually what is happening here. So with that said, let's begin with with the first question that, that flows out of verses 14 through 17, and it's this. Who are the children of God? Who are the children of God? Now, the popular answer in our secular culture is going to be everybody is the children of God. So if you would go to a man or woman on the street and say, who are the children of God? They would emphatically say, everyone are the children of, all people are the children of God. And if they were familiar with the Bible, their go-to passage would be Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, we find the apostle Paul. He's in the city of Athens. He's talking to a group of Greek philosophers. He's trying to help them understand that they're idolaters. And in this dialogue, this is what we will hear the apostle Paul saying, and starting in verse 26. He says, and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is trying to help these people understand that they're idolaters because they they were surrounded, the city of Athens was filled with lots of idols that they called gods. And so he's trying to help these philosophers understand that they're really not worshiping God, they're worshiping these these fake idols, and he's trying to build some level of rapport with them. And so what he does is he's a very smart man. He quotes a third century BC Greek poet named Aratus who wrote a poem about Zeus, the mythological Greek god. And this is what Aratus said 300 years prior to Paul. In every way, we have all to do with Zeus, for we are truly his offspring. So Paul isn't saying here that we are all children of God. He is merely quoting a poem that these guys were familiar with to ultimately help them to understand that they're being idolaters. So if Paul is saying anything in these verses about humanity, he's merely saying that humanity finds its source and the God of the universe. But that isn't even close to the intimacy that occurs in God's family when we call God our Father that we see in just a few moments. So what does the Bible actually have to say about humanity as it relates to God? Well, the first place to look is Ephesians chapter 2. This is what Ephesians 2 tells us. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
So what Paul is telling these Christians that are living in, in the city of Ephesus, that prior to coming to faith in Christ, that they were sons and daughters of disobedience. And they were by nature children of wrath. Now he says something very similar in Colossians 1. This is what he says in Colossians 1, speaking to the Christians in the city of Colossae. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what's the status of the Christians that are living in Colossae before coming to faith in Christ? They were alienated from and hostile to God. So here's the bottom line. Without faith in Jesus Christ, no one is a child of God. That, that's what the Bible teaches us. That outside of Jesus, we're, we're children of wrath, we've been rejected by God, we're disobedient, and the reality is we all know that. Because prior to coming to faith, we realized that. Our eyes were open and we saw, oh my gosh, I, I, I'm, I'm living for the wrong purposes. And, and so here Paul lays this out. So who in the world then are the children of God? Well, if we go to Romans 8, 14, he tells us. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So before we go any further, let's talk about this term, the sons of God. We live in a culture that is easily offended. Am I telling you anything new? And it gives no one the benefit of the doubt. That's the culture that we live in right now. Everyone's hypersensitive. Nobody gives any grace. Nobody gives any benefit of doubt. And this is especially true when it comes to issues of gender. And as we work through this section of Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to refer to Christians two times as sons and two times as children. Now, people don't necessarily have a problem with the term children because children is gender neutral, right? When you say children, it can be boys or girls, it can be all boys, it can be all girls. But when you come along and you use the term sons and you don't put the words daughters after that, people tend to get a little bent out of shape. Now, before any of us become one of those easily offended people and get up and bolt out of here, we need to remember that the recipients of this letter to, to the Roman Christians are what? They're both men and women. He's not just writing to guys. He's writing to both men and women. So clearly when Paul is using this term sons in this passage, talking about who are the children of God, it's in a universal sense that refers to both men and women because his audience is both men and women. But if that's the case, why didn't he say that? Why didn't he call them the sons and daughters of God? And I believe it's at this point where we've got to remember what we just learned about adoption in the first century Greco-Roman world. Paul is talking about adoption. 
The culture that they lived in was exclusively male-dominated when it comes to adoption. And so what Paul is doing is he's taking this male-dominated secular institution of adoption and he's Christianizing it by applying it to both men and women. And when it comes to God's family, everyone, both men and women, are adopted into God's family. But Paul does something else. He turns the idea that, that adoption was exclusively designed only for male, one male to be the heir, and he puts it on his head because now everybody is an heir. My favorite pastor, Tim Keller, this is what he says about this passage. He says, Christian women should not resent being called sons any more than Christian men should not resent being called part of the bride of Christ. Christians are all sons and all the bride. And this is the favorite part that I have. God is even-handed in his use of his metaphors. That God is fair when all of this goes down. So now let's go back to the original question. Who exactly are the children of God? Well, it's those who are led by the Spirit. Now the immediate question becomes, what does that mean? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is some kind of personal life coach. That's not the Holy Spirit. He, he's not some kind of spiritual Tony Robbins or Dr. Phil guiding us through the day-to-day -day decisions that we've got to make. So being led by the Holy Spirit isn't about God coming alongside of us and telling us what kind of car to buy or apartment to lease or person to date. So what does it mean? Well, that little three-letter word that begins with F in the beginning of verse 14 gives us a clue, the word for. It always, therefore, tells us to look back. The word for tells us to look back. All we gotta look back is one verse. And Bongo beat on this last week like crazy when, when he talked about this whole idea of, of mortifying our flesh, killing the sin inside of us, because that's what verse 13 is about. Verse 13 is about the Holy Spirit empowering us to put to death the deeds of the body, our sin nature. And being led by the Holy Spirit is living a life that is dominated by the Spirit of God and not by our own flesh. And in that case... The Holy Spirit isn't as much leading us as he is controlling us, forming us into the, the image of God, empowering us to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. That's what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. It's living a life where, where everything is, is surrendered to God's spirit to be dominated not by the things of the world or by our sinful desires or by what other people say that we should be doing, but be dominated by God's will and purpose for our lives. But how does that happen? How does someone who is an enemy of God, someone who is under God's wrath, who has spent his or her 
entire life living for themselves. How does someone like that, someone like me, someone like you, how does someone who is lost and alone, someone who is a spiritual orphan, how do we become the children of God? We find the answer in verse 15. Paul says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, the only way that we become a son or daughter of God, one of God's heirs, if, is if God actively chooses to adopt us, just like the ancient Greco-Romans actively chose to adopt an heir. Now, how does that work? How does somebody who's blinded by sin, alienated from God, spiritually lost, how does someone like that actually get adopted? Well, like any adoption, it's not initiated by the one who's being adopted, it's initiated by the one who's actually doing the adopting. Now, my daughter Nicole, she did not initiate her adoption. She wasn't even conceived when the process began back in 1995. I remember coming home from work one day. Actually, I think I came home from a business trip. I had been away. And Kathy, she's a stay-at-home mom at the time. Mikey's four. John is two. And, and, and I come home to chaos. Now, it's not chaos in, in a bad way by any stretch of the imagination, but, but it's chaos nonetheless. If you're a mom and you've had a four-year-old and a two-year-old, you, you know what that chaos is like. You should figure, managing a, a toddler and a four-year-old all day long while your husband is at work every day and, and once a month he's traveling for an entire uh, week on the other side of the country, that, that is not for the faint of heart. So I come home one day from this business trip now you gotta understand, I've been staying in really nice hotels. I'm eating really good food. I, I'm smoozing the customers. I'm the factory guy. Everybody's happy to have you know, product manager Leonzo at the job site. And the first thing I say when I come through the door to this amazing woman who I have left alone with a two-year-old and a four-year-old for an entire week is this. Hey, Kath, while I, I was gone, I was thinking maybe we should adopt a child. Yeah, you can imagine how that went over. Kathy's like, are you out of your mind? Do you have any clue what is going on around here while you are gallivanting around the country? We're not adopting a kid. We're not adopting a dog. We're not adopting a goldfish. If we adopt anything, Mike, we're adopting a cleaning lady. That's what we're adopting. Now, I know that I've gotten myself in deep, it didn't take long to figure out this bad statement, Mike. So I decide that I'm going to appeal to Kathy's Christian, you know, her conscience. And I'm like, hun, would you at least 
pray about it. And Kathy agrees to pray about it. Now, if she would have said that to me, Mike, would you, if she came with the adoption idea, I was opposed to the adoption idea, and she would have said to me, will you at least pray about it? I would have said yes, and I probably would have never prayed about it. But Kath, she's a whole lot more spiritual than me. And that woman, she begins to pray, and she begins to pray, and she begins to pray. And in a matter of six months, she goes from a woman who wants absolutely nothing to do with adoption to being absolutely obsessed with an adoption. And that, brothers and sisters, is God. God is on a mission to adopt men and women into his family. He's the one who initiates it. It's not us. He's the one who reaches out. He's the one who draws us to himself. And it all begins with, with this theological term called the gospel call. And we see it in 1 Peter 2. This is what Peter tells us. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, becoming a child of God, it begins with God actively moving towards us, making himself known, actively calling us out of the kingdom of darkness. And that's exactly where I was living in the spring of my senior year in 1982 at Central Dolphin High School. I was living in the midst of the darkness. And so what happens here in the midst of all of that, now compared to the darkness that many people live in, my darkness didn't seem that bad. I was a pretty good student. I was in all advanced classes. The problem was I was getting C pluses and B minuses because I can't remember ever studying in high school at all other than in study hall, much to my parents' chagrin. I did listen to my mom and dad. They'll testify to that right now most of the time. I didn't drink because my grandma and grandpa Baker were wild alcoholics and I saw the destruction that it wrought onto my mom and onto her sisters, and I wasn't even gonna dabble in that area. I didn't smoke, I didn't do drugs, I wasn't having sex, which is not very difficult when you can't get anyone to date you. You see, to the world, I was good, but to God, I was crazy lost. That's where I was. And through a series of events that only can be attributed to the hand of God, I find myself as a non-Christian at a Christian college surrounded by a bunch of guys who actually love Jesus. And they love God's word and they love me and they keep telling me about the gospel and I didn't know it at the time, but God was actively pursuing me in the same way that Kathy and I were actively pursuing Nicole before she was even 
born. And when that happens, as God begins to, to pursue us and as we move towards this adoption, there, there's something that happens in our lives called regeneration. Theologian Wayne Grudem de defines regeneration in this way. It's something that a lot of people would call the term born again. He says it's this, the secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us where he brings us from the spiritual death to spiritual life. And we see this in the words of the prophet Ezekiel. This is what Ezekiel says. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now notice, who's doing the work there? It's not me. It's God. We have absolutely nothing to do with this part. It's God who calls us to himself. It's God who ensures that the gospel is shared with us. And it's God who breathes in us spiritual life into us so that we can respond to him. And that response is called conversion. And conversion is when we respond to something that God has already done. And that response is that we turn away from sin, which is called repentance, and we turn to God, which is called faith. So even though God draws us to himself, even though God empowers us to respond to the gospel, it is still our responsibility Mike Leonzo's responsibility back then in November of 1982 to repent and believe. And this is what Jesus is referring to in that ever familiar passage of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever, what, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the faith part. And when we come to faith, then we get justified by God. Now, we've been talking about justification for several weeks, and that justification comes what? Justification with God comes through faith. Now, in case you've forgotten, let me explain justification very quickly. Justification is the process where we get, get right legal standing with God. It's where God actually declares our sins to be forgiven, us to be not guilty. And so here we are at this point. God has, has uh, called us. He's regenerated us. We've responded in faith. We've now been justified. All of that is wonderful. We've got this new spiritual life. We've got right standing with God. But here's the thing we're missing. We're still orphans. We've got all that stuff but we're still orphans. And this is where adoption comes in. Look again at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now notice the word there. It's received. We receive sonship and daughtership. It's not something we earn. 
It's not something we deserve. It's not something we win like some kind of spiritual Super Bowl lotto. It's not any of that. It's something that God gives us. Out of his infinite goodness, he adopts us. And like earthly adoption, it is a legal action which is initiated by the adoptive parent. And folks, it is crazy costly. If you've ever gone through a 21st century adoption, you know it isn't cheap. Back in 1996, Kathy and I had been out of college for 10 years. Uh, we had a, had a nice home, we had some cars, we had a mortgage, we had some car payments. Yeah, we were saving in our 401k and things like that, but we had been saving on the side. So for, for 10 years, we had been putting money aside like as a kind of an emergency fund. And when it came time to adopt Nicole, we took that money, cleaned out our savings, took money that my parents had provided us to, to buy a new car, basically, and we got a kid. That's how costly it was. And now, some 25 years later, with a whole lot more money in the bank, I would clean out that savings account in a heartbeat to adopt her again. That's how much I love her. And you want to understand something? The same is true for you and me. Our adoption by God, incredibly costly. Makes the adoption that Kathy and I did for Nicole seem like chump change. What did it cost God to adopt us? It cost him his son. He had to give his child so that you and I might live. That is how valuable we are have been and will forever be to God. Now, now this should completely blow our minds. That in order for us to be in God's family, he loved us enough so that his son dies so that we can be a part of his family. Amazing. But being adopted into God's family, it comes with some unbelievable privileges on top of that. Look again at verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what are the privileges that are contained in those verses with being a child of God? Number one. We do not have to fear. That's verse 15. What is the hallmark of a healthy parent-child relationship? It's security. That I'm secure at home. When I was 11 years old, my mom's dad, Simon Baker, my grandpa Baker, died at the age of 56 years old. All that alcoholism caught up to him. He died of sclerosis of the liver. And despite all of his flaws, I loved him dearly. And his passing 
was my very first encounter with death. I had no idea as an 11-year-old kid what to do with that. Grandpa's here one moment, he's gone the next. And to be wildly honest, I was absolutely terrified. And I can remember that night that he died during the day, that night, we're living at 706 Rockford Drive out in Lower Paxton Township off of Blue Ridge Avenue. And uh, my room was right next door to my mom and dad's room. We lived in this little uh, Cape Cod house. And uh, I'm laying in my bed, and I am absolutely terrified. I, I don't know whether my grandpa's going to come back and scare me. I don't know about ghosts. I don't, I don't know any. All I know is he's dead. I don't know what to do with dead, and I'm terrified. And I can remember going into my mom and dad's room and saying, Mom and Dad, I am so scared. Can I just sleep on your floor? You guys remember that? And I slept on that floor probably for three or four nights until we got past the funeral. Because why? I was safe with my mom and dad. Now I know for some of you, your experience with your mom or your dad may be anything but safe. Maybe your mom or perhaps your dad, a lot of times, unfortunately, in particular, it's the guy, they were violent or angry. Perhaps your dad wasn't even present. And that may be your experience, and I am in no way discounting that experience, but I am here to tell you that God the Father, he is not your earthly dad. You can have the greatest earthly dad in the world like I have. And my dad doesn't even come close to how great God is. He is perfect love, perfect faithfulness. He is perfect trustworthiness, perfect strength, perfect grace. So much so that this is what he tells the Old Testament hero, Joshua. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When we're in God's family, we're secure. We're safe. We have nothing to fear because we have a good dad. Number two, there is intimacy in God's family. That's the ending part of verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That, that term, Abba, at the end of verse 15 has nothing to do with the 70s Swedish pop group that's trying to make a comeback. So if you have immediately started hearing the lyrics Dancing Queen in the back of your mind, or you've got this sudden urge to run home and, and put on a, a pair of white satin bell bottoms and a matching white shirt and watch the show Mamma Mia, you gotta dial in with me here for just a couple minutes, okay? You can do that when you go home. But Abba 
is the Aramaic word for daddy. It's this term of incredible deep intimacy. And it's the very same term that, that Jesus uses in Mark 14 as he's fervently praying in the Garden of Gethsemane to his daddy because he doesn't want to have to go to the cross. He's terrified of the cross. And that's his human side coming out. And this is how Jesus prays. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. As sons and daughters in the family of God, we have this deep level of intimacy with God that allows us to, to confidently come to him in the midst of our greatest crisis and know that he loves us and that he cares for us and that he will be there for us. But there are still more privileges that come with being a child of God. Third one, we have this confidence in our standing before God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, not only does the Holy Spirit make us the children of God, not only does he take up residence in us, not only does he convict us of sin and comfort us in our struggles, but the Holy Spirit comes along inside of us and reminds us that we are actually God's children. And that has been something that Kathy and I have worked so hard to do in Nicole's life. Because when you're an adopted kid, you always wonder, will this family ever stop loving me? You always wonder, what happened that my birth mom doesn't want me anymore? There's, there's this sense that, that you're not secure. And Kath and I understood that from the classes that we took. We knew that that's something that we would have to constantly pour into Nicole's heart. We wanted her to know that she knows that she knows that she is ours. And nothing ever will ever, ever, ever change that. And the same is true for God with us. For as much as we try to do that in Nicole's heart, God wants us to be assured that we are in right standing with him. And there are times in my life when I blow it that I want to doubt that God is okay with me. There's times when I begin to question, am I really saved? How could someone who's saved actually think that or do that thing? And that's when the Holy Spirit comes along and he gives me assurance and I love the words of Jesus in John 10 when he says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a promise we can take to the grave. Okay. So in addition to not having to fear and to being able to be in this intimate relationship with God and to being assured of right standing with God, there is another benefit 
that comes from being adopted by God, and that is that we become his heirs. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now you gotta remember Back to what I told you about first century Greco-Roman adoption. What did I tell you about the heir? There's only one. What does Jesus say? We are heirs, plural. God doesn't just have one heir. All his children are co-heirs. That's amazing. But here's what's even more amazing. God doesn't have to split his inheritance up With us, he gives every one of us all of it. How can he do that? Well, because God is infinite. He has no beginning and no end. What he has, his possessions, they're incalculable. He can give it all to me and at the same time give it all to John. He can give give it all away over and over and over again and everybody gets everything because he's the infinite God of the universe. All that God has promised, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, a new heaven and a new earth, glorified bodies, it's all ours because he chose to adopt us. One last thing. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. See, God promises that there is another privilege that comes with being his child, and that is we get to suffer. Now, some of you are probably thinking right now, Mike, it's 10.05. You've gotten a little long-winded, Why don't we just end with that last point? Skip the whole suffering thing. Get out of here. The Eagles are playing Denver. The Steelers are playing Detroit. Yeah, get a clap for that, right? I hear what you're saying, but the fact of the matter is suffering comes with being a child of God. Everybody in the world suffers in some way or another. Christians, however, in addition to the general suffering that gets doled out in the world because we live in this broken, sinful place, Christians also suffer specifically because they've been adopted into God's family. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Say what, Jesus? Yeah, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For as they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, Jesus suffered and was rejected by the world. Should we be surprised that the same would happen to us, to those who God has called to himself? If we are truly living for Jesus, yes, people will begin to see Jesus in us. 
And just as people have rejected Jesus, they're going to reject us. And just as Jesus suffered from that rejection, so too will we suffer. But that suffering is not in vain. It has a purpose so that God might be glorified in all that we do. And brothers and sisters, it is getting more and more costly every day to be a Christian. We have lived in a honeymoon period in Christianity for a very, very long time. We now live in a post-Christian culture. What we're doing right now is an anathema to many people. Your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, some of your family members think you are absolutely out of your minds. They don't want your input in your township meetings, school boards, juries. They don't want any of that. And in some places in the world, following Christ comes with death. It's not at this point yet here in America, but make no mistake about it, it's coming. It is coming. This is going to get very costly. There will be a day, and perhaps a not so far future, when this is impossible. There will come a day when you lose your job because of your faith. There will come a day when a house won't get rented to you or sold to you because of your faith. That day is coming. And Jesus is coming too, but until he comes, it is only going to get harder and harder and harder. But be encouraged by the words of Peter who understood suffering. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What is Peter telling us? He is telling us that God has a great purpose in suffering. And Jesus' suffering, it created the way that you and I, orphans, slaves to sin, children of wrath, might be adopted into God's family and be freed from the sin and a recipient of God's love. And while that is great, it did something much greater. Jesus' victory on the cross did the most important thing of all. 
the most important thing that we could possibly ever do. And that is to bring glory to God the Father. And that's what suffering ultimately does. We live in a culture that will look at you and will say this. They will say, I don't get how you can trust this God of yours because you're suffering. They will look at you in the midst of your cancer. They will look at you in the midst of your, your husband leaving you or your wife leaving you or your kids going crazy or, or your son overdosing or, or your, your daughter running away and all these things. Well, they will look at whatever suffering comes into your life. You're losing a job, whatever it is, they will look at it and they will say, where is your God? They will say, I thought your God was a loving God and I thought your God was a powerful God. Well, I don't think he can be that, they'll say. They will say, because if he is a loving God, then he must not be all powerful because if he was loving, he wouldn't want you to suffer and so he must not have enough power to stop your suffering. Or they will say, well, perhaps your God is powerful enough to stop the suffering and he sees you with a cancer but he's not doing anything about it, so maybe he doesn't love you as much as you think. He loves you. And our society will get stuck there. But what they will miss, they will miss that God is all-loving and God is all-powerful and God has a purpose for the suffering. And that purpose always, always, always is so that he might be glorified. That's the way that it works. Look back at the suffering in your life and if you've been through it far enough, you will see how God began to, to, to get glory out of the midst of your suffering. I've told this story before, I'll tell it again. My grandmother and Grandpa Leonzo, and I just kicked that off the stage. My grandma and Grandpa Leonzo, in 1994, they died within three months of one another. It was devastating to that man. It was devastating to me, but it was devastating to him. I can remember him telling me, and they weren't Christians at the time. And I can remember the him telling me, Mike, I feel like an orphan. And do you know how God was glorified through the deaths of my grandma and grandpa Leonzo? Within four or five months of their death, my aunt in Georgia comes to faith in Jesus Christ. My mom and dad come to faith in Jesus Christ. And if it cost my grandma and grandpa's life so that they might have life, it was all worth it because God gets glorified. And that's how it works in, in all these struggles in our lives. And in the midst of the struggle, I, I get it. It's hard to see that. But on the other side of the suffering, we always see the purpose that God is about glorifying himself. And so may you and I, may we rejoice in all of the benefits that come with being adopted by God, including our suffering, so that we might know God in deeper ways and that we might bring him glory. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty Father, all-sufficient one, we recognize that you are absolutely complete in your perfect union with the Son and the Spirit. We recognize that because of our sin, that we are completely unworthy to be in your presence. 
let alone be recipients of your love. And you have given us both. Your love for us is as vast as the universe that you have created. Your acceptance of us is based not on our worth, but on the worth of your son. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you that we can be secure in knowing that we are a part of your family. Thank you that you have made yourself so accessible, accessible that we can call you Abba, Daddy. Thank you that our status in your family is secured by the all-powerful blood of your son. Thank you that you have a place in your inheritance that includes eternal forgiveness of sin, everlasting life, a home in your kingdom, and glorified bodies which will not grow weak and fail, that will not know pain of cancer or COVID or any other disease and will be free of sadness and brokenness. Thank you also for the suffering that you allow to come into our lives, which allows us to better relate to the suffering that Jesus experienced on our behalf. Empower us to rejoice in our suffering, to be patient in our affliction, to be constant in prayer, knowing that our suffering is not futile, but ultimately brings you glory. And Lord, as we prepare to take this offering, we pause to remember the sacrifice and commitment of the men and women who have served in our armed forces during this Veterans Week. We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy because of their service. We're able to work and enjoy our families and pursue happiness and live in freedom and peace because they've answered the call of our country. May we always honor them, not only for a day, but in all times and in all places. And now, Lord, thank you for those who give to make all that we experience here possible. May they give knowing that these resources will be used for the furtherance of your kingdom. Would you empower our leadership and our staff to be good and faithful stewards, knowing that we are not only accountable to them, but more importantly, accountable to you. And we pray all these things in your son's matchless name. And all God's people said, amen.